Hey guys, I hope you're doing great today and I can't wait to bring you the show. But before I do, I just wanna make a quick request. If you're listening to the show and you're getting good value and you're enjoying the content and you feel that it's valuable, if you could just take a second and go and give me a rating and review in whatever platform you listen, whether it be Apple or Google or uh, Spotify, whatever it is, just go and give me a rating and review, that would be very appreciated. All right guys, let's dive in. So I think the market's still pretty strong. I've not heard anybody, and I'm part of the seven-figure flipping group, uh, as is Kyle. I, I've not seen anybody in there say that the market's like leveling off or crashing anywhere. So I'm not seeing that evidence yet. I do think something is going to happen. And I, I would just be so surprised if we didn't see any evidence, evidence of it before the end of the year. But honestly, I said that last year. I really thought by the beginning of this year, we would start seeing some evidence of a slowdown and maybe even a decline hasn't happened. You know, it's, I guess if I just keep predicting that I will eventually be right, but um, I'm not seeing it, man. I, I'm not seeing it just yet. So we'll see. I, that being said, if someone tried to talk to me about getting into a three-year project right now and investing a ton of money in some sort of like a land development deal, I, I wouldn't do it. I would be very nervous to get into some long-term deal, but because I'm a wholesaler in and out, in and out for flippers, same thing. You're into it for four or five months, maybe six months. That's not bad. I don't know if I'd get into a three-year development thing, you know, where I was counting on appreciation. Like that seems a little nerve-wracking. You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me here on Just Start Real Estate. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you tuning in. I'm excited to bring you the latest version of my Facebook live Q&A that we do here on Thursdays. Every Thursday, we replay that. Uh, those are a lot of fun. If you're not attending them live, you should. We do them on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on Facebook. You can go to Just Start Real Estate on Facebook and uh, hop on the page and participate. Ask questions live and, and I will answer them and we'll interact and talk and hopefully help you out a lot in your business. If you don't have time or just missed out on the Q&A, you're in luck. I replay them every Thursday for you here. Guys, also, I wanna make sure that you know the latest and greatest installment of my program, the Real Estate Find and Fund Blueprint is almost ready to start. So if you haven't jumped in, if you haven't got involved, if you haven't signed up, you need to do that now. Go to findandfundblueprint.com, findandfundblueprint.com. You can get more details and sign up. I really think you owe it to yourself. You owe it to your business. Go check it out. I cannot wait to help you with your business personally, and I do that for everyone in the program. So without any further ado, guys, let's jump into today's show. We talk today uh, in our Q&A that I'm replaying for you. We talk about uh, at what point, uh, someone asked, at what point do you actually, should you form an actual entity, a legal you know, business? Keeping in mind, I'm not, uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not giving legal advice, but they asked my opinion of when should you actually make it official, make it a business? Um, what to do if your marketing efforts are just not working? And how frequently you should be sending marketing out? 
How aggressive should you be with that? Um, we talked about exit strategies. We talked about when is it the right time to quit your job and go full-time into real estate. And we also touched on uh, going into business and doing business with friends and family. So this was a really, really interesting, interesting Q&A. There were some great questions. I hope you guys love it. Uh, and without any further delay, let's give you uh, the latest version of my Facebook Q&A. All right, guys, we are live once again for uh, our Q&A here. We do this every week on Wednesdays, as you know, uh, from 7 p.m. Eastern time and uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. So I'm here every week at those times. <clears throat> and I am going to just load my screen up here so I can see everybody's questions. And this time, this week, we have a lot of questions, actually. There's uh, one from last week. Uh, that I'm going to be answering, and then just a ton that came in this week. So um, I had a chance to just peek at them real quick, uh, and they're great. They're good. This is going to be a lot of fun. Um, also, guys, if you don't remember this, I have a program that's launching in September. September 21st is the launch date, I believe. Um, but you can go and check out the site if you want to see more about it. Uh, the goal here is to help you find and fund more deals this year. So whether you're looking for your first deal or looking for your next deal, or trying to figure out how to scale that process up, or how to find better deals, right? Sometimes we can find deals and they're just not the best. We're just struggling to find something really, really good. Uh, I will help you with that. I'm also going to help you with a lot of other stuff. It's just going to be over deliver city. I, I really, really think that this program is going to be fantastic for you, whether you're new or not, whether you're, you've been doing this for a while or you're, you're brand new, it doesn't really matter because what stays constant is as investors, we are always trying to find more deals or better deals or cheaper deals, or we're trying to find money because we found the deals, but we don't know how to get the money. I hear that from so many people. It still kind of shocks me because I really think that the money is out there if you know how to get it and where to go. Uh, but people struggle with that. People who've been doing this for years still struggle with the money part of it. So I've created a program where I'm addressing those core issues. And we're going to talk about building a team. We're going to talk about all the stuff that you need around that, but a heavy focus on finding and funding all of your deals. So go and check that out. You can do it at findandfundblueprint.com. That's findandfundblueprint.com. Go there and check it out. I'd love to see you on the inside of that program. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to learn a lot. And I think a lot of businesses are going to be changed before the year's over and people are going to hit some goals that they didn't think they could hit. So I would love to see you there. Okay, let's dive into the questions for tonight and see what we have. The missed question, uh, This when I say missed, it means we logged off and somebody asked a question and we were already logged off. So that question is from Jake Salazar. Uh, at what point do I form a real estate business? After you get properties or right away? Um, so when they say form a real estate business, I think what they're, what they're saying here is when do I form my LLC is what it sounds like. Um, and that's a pretty good question, actually. It, it's... Um, it get at it gets asked of me surprisingly a lot. Uh, people are really really concerned. Do I need to form my LLC before I ever get a deal under contract or before I ever flip a deal? And I'm just going to say right off the bat, I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not a real estate attorney. Um, don't take legal advice from me. But here's what I will say, and I, I wholeheartedly believe this, and I stand behind it. Go get a deal. Just go get a deal. Like don't don't worry about. I don't have my LLC. It's I can't think of a name for my LLC. The name I wanted was taken. I hear this stuff all the time. And I always try to be um, have empathy for that. 
But when I hear a question about should I form my LLC before I ever get a property? Sure. Yeah. But what happens is that step of getting the LLC formed keeps people from actually going out and finding deals and making money. And so if it was me starting over again, I would be looking for deals first. I'll form that LLC when I get time, maybe in the evening or whatever, or I have someone help me, whatever it is, but I'm going and looking for deals. Like don't let stuff stop you. Now, should you do a hundred deals under your personal name? No, of course not. Of course not. But I want to see you get that first deal done. And if that means you go get that done before you get the LLC, because for whatever for whatever reason, that LLC is holding you back and making you stressed out. And I know it, I do it. I, I recognize it in people because I do it. I procrastinate on stuff that I don't want to do. I don't like doing. It's something that maybe just isn't in my wheelhouse. So I'll procrastinate on something like that and it'll keep me from getting other things done. So I say, go get, go, do, go do the deal. Just do, do the deal, make money, start moving forward, get some forward momentum and then form the LLC when you're free time or when you get a minute. Like that's really the way I would do it if it was me and I was like, oh, do I get the, where do I spend my time? And maybe this person, maybe Jake has a full-time job. I'm, maybe, I'm assuming he does, but maybe he's got a full-time job and he's just having a hard time finding time to look for deals and get the LLC formed. I don't know. In different states, it's a different process. Where I live in Michigan, you can form an LLC and get all the paperwork back and be official in 24 hours. I think you can even rush it and get it same day. And it's like 50 bucks, 75 bucks. It's nothing. It's so easy. So in Michigan, I have zero tolerance. Like do it right now. Do it before the end of the day and get it done if that's a concern of yours. But I say, go get the deal. Like just go get your first deal. Don't don't stress out over all the legalities and, and like whatever. Just go get your first deal. Make money get that feeling of success under you. And then maybe ask somebody to form the LLC. That's just better with, you know, filling out documents and submitting them to the, to the state. Like if that just stresses you out, or it's just something you don't want to deal with, have somebody help you do it. Not a lawyer, frankly, because anyone can do it in most States. Anyone can do it. And a lawyer will charge you hundreds of dollars to do something that might cost not a lot. So go get the deal. Just go get the deal first. That's my that's my short uh, advice to you. Um, but again, I'm not a lawyer, so you know if you want to consult a lawyer, go ahead. But that will slow things down. I can tell you that much. Okay. Uh, next question. We spent a lot of money on direct mail the first six months of this year with no results. Six months. Okay. In June, we started cold calling, RVM, and text. Still no good results. We are looking for any recommendations that might help. Okay. That's a fair question. And I think it's important to note that this person has, they gave direct mail six months, it sounds like. So I, I could literally just, just wash all these other questions off my plate and I could spend the next 45 minutes talking about just this one question because there's more layers here than what you might realize. And there's an awful lot of questions I would have to ask this person and have like back and forth, give and take for me to really, really, really help out to the most of my ability. Um, because there's a ton of questions that are, that are not being answered in this, in this question that they're asking me, right? So not to go back to it and overly hype my own program, but this is why the program is, it is important because we can have this back and forth and I can really dig in and, and explain everything. But 
I'm going to do my best to answer this as thoroughly as, as possible. Okay. They did direct mail for six months, this person, and didn't. Okay. So I'm, I'm reading like all of the words that they're saying and trying to like really understand. They did it for six months with no results. Okay. My first question would be, did you get no calls? Did you get no response from your direct mail? Zero. Or when you say no results, do you mean no contracts and, and nothing that got monetized? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of assuming when they say results, they mean revenue. Okay. That that's one result of direct mail. The first result of direct mail usually are calls, form fills on your website, um, emails, whatever, whatever you're doing on your, on your direct mail, your call to action, let's just assume for the sake of argument, it's a, it's a phone number. And the call to action is call us, you know, we do this, we're investors, we can buy for cash, whatever the, whatever the direct mail says. And then it, it, there's a call to action is to call you. So uh, I would be surprised if they did direct mail for six months with no results, meaning no calls, no, no uh, response to their direct mail. But my other question would be, if you got no calls from your direct mail, what did you do during the six months to tweak the message? I think six months, by the way, guys, is a really good, fair runway. It's, it's a really good test to see if what you're doing is working. You give it six months and it doesn't work, that's fair. But during the six-month time, you have to make some adjustments if nothing's happening. So in other words, you start in January, you blast out some mail, you get nothing, no calls. Like you can't just do the exact same thing in February and March and April and, and get no calls, no calls, no calls, and just stubbornly stay by your direct mail piece. You have to be, um, you have to modify it. You have to do something to try to stimulate some response. I really believe when they say no results, they mean no revenue, no contracts that they were able to, to monetize, whether they're wholesaler or flipper, they just weren't able to do anything. Because my guess is direct mail for six months did um, get some calls. It probably got some response. So then the next step in the process of trying to troubleshoot why the direct mail didn't work would be the person who, and I'm going to go off the assumption that there was a, the call to action was a phone number and they wanted them to, the person to call them. The, whoever's answering the phone for you, that person is the first failure point other than the direct mail piece itself could be a failure point. By the way, if you're not getting any calls, you need to talk to your, your mailer, whoever's doing the mail and look at your design. Something is amiss if you get no calls. Okay. The other reason though, I will say this to take a step back. The other reason why you might not get any calls on your direct mail is you're not sending enough. Okay. So um, I have had people tell me that they're in a competitive market and they sent out 500 postcards. And it, it, every market is competitive right now because of house prices. But in your, if you're in a traditionally competitive market, and I, I always use Southern California because it is one of the most competitive markets in the country. If you're in Southern California right now and you send out 500 postcards and you're expecting it to get deals, it's like, getting hit by lightning, winning the lottery odds that you're going to get a deal from 500 cards in most cases. It's just not enough. It's, it's just not enough. You know, it's like, it's like standing in front of a burning building and throwing like a drinking cup of water on it. 
it, it just, you'll never put that fire out, right? You'll find it very difficult, if not impossible to get a deal if you're not sending enough mail and enough mail is really dictated by what your goals are, what your budget is and how competitive your market is. And, and sometimes it's the list that you're sending to has some impact on it also. So there's a whole, like, there's like three or four layers we've already hit on that I would have to go several questions deep to really troubleshoot this, but I'm going to keep powering through because I think this is still important stuff to talk about. So no results. The mail piece could have been not great. Okay. It could have been bad. Um, something could have gone wrong at the mail house, but not for six months, probably. So I'm looking at the message on the direct mail piece. I'm wondering how many times the phone actually rang and who answers it and what they're doing when they answer it. How is that being handled? Were they sending enough direct mail to actually get a response? I mean, I've told people this a hundred, probably 500 times actually. And I'm sort of saying it like sarcastic, like tongue in cheek. But if you're in a competitive market, and like I said, almost every place is competitive now, and you send out 500 postcards, in a month, like for the whole month, and you expect something to happen, you'd be better off setting those cards on fire and heat trying to heat your house with them. It's just, it's just waste of time. Honestly, it's just, it's, it's tough love. Like it sucks to have to say that, but that's, that's the truth. So in most markets, you have to be sending over a thousand and maybe several thousand if you expect to get a real response just because of how competitive it is. So those are some things that could happen on the front end. In June, I'm reading the, the question again. In June, we started cold calling. So it sounds like six months and then direct mail just gave up on it, which is okay. I'm not saying you shouldn't in six months. At some point, you have to just like pull the plug, right? You can't just bleed money. In June, we started cold calling RVM and text. Still no good results. So it sounds like there were some results. So again, what is the cold caller saying? What's the process there? How many people are you calling? Cold calling... All real estate, like lead gen, is a numbers game, all of it. You have to do enough of it to make an impact. Cold calling is no exception. Um, I've recently talked to some folks that were doing cold calling, started doing cold calling, and they were like picking up the phone, dialing a number, waiting for someone to answer. If they didn't answer, they hung up, looked up the next phone number, dialed it in the phone, picked it up, waited for someone to answer. Like, that will, you need a, you would need an army of people handling it like that. When it comes to cold calling, the list matters for sure, right? The, the, the list that you're calling, but you need to use a, a, some kind of a power dialer or one of these services that you can load up all your numbers and it will call like five numbers at the same time. And the minute one of them picks up, it just drops the other ones. It just ends those. And you talk to the person who just answered. And then when you're done, you hang up and it calls five more again. That's a power dialer. That's what you need to really be doing. And, and honestly, it's not just one person. Like it's, it's, it's a good idea to have multiple people dialing like that. If you want cold calling to produce some kind of a significant result. Now, if you're brand new and you, you don't necessarily need 10 deals a month, then maybe one person doing a power dialer could be okay, right? But I think you're going to want to scale that up eventually. I know people who do cold calling quite a bit and they're really, really good at it. And they almost always have a handful of people doing it. It's not just one person. So, and what are they saying? You know, it matters what you say. It's not just like, it doesn't matter. It matters what you say. There's a, there's, you should be following some sort of a script or uh, some formula that's proven of what to say when people do answer the phone or how to answer, how to handle those calls. RVM means ringless voicemail. And text again, 
a numbers game. If you if you're doing RVM and text to like 500 people and you blast it out, there's little to zero chance like you're going to get a deal. You need to be doing that in volume. Like ringless voicemail and text is so cheap. We're talking like fractions of a penny. You need to be doing thousands and thousands of those a day, in my opinion, to really see any kind of significant results from that. Okay. So there's a lot of things here. I think the direct mail, depending on where your market is, depending on what your mail piece look like, like I, there would be a ton of questions I would have for you there, but you gave it six months. That's great. What did you do during the six months to try to fix it, to try to make it be more effective? How many did you send out? And then what are people saying when they answer the phone? And then another level to this that we didn't talk about is if, if I'm going to go on the assumption that, that they didn't get results and that means they didn't get they didn't make revenue. They didn't make money off of their efforts with their um, direct mail. My other question is, assuming your mail piece is great, which it doesn't sound like it was because you're not getting great results, but if the mail piece was good and you're getting the phone to ring and the person who answers the phone, and by the way, that's important. A person should answer the phone. It shouldn't go to voicemail. Um, it shouldn't, there shouldn't just be like some sort of a recorded thing. You want a human being to answer that phone. But assuming the person who answers the phone did a good job, the next layer is, who who was going on these sales calls? Who was who was actually going on the appointments? Assuming you're you're getting appointments, who was going on them? What does your acquisition person do on these appointments? What are they saying? Are they good? Maybe maybe that's where the failure point is. And again, I, I think that that the 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 question kind of implies that they weren't really getting a lot of calls, and the calls they were getting weren't very good. That's that's what I'm assuming. But I, I, again, I've, I've talked to plenty of people who said, my direct mail is not working. And when I get down to it, it's like, oh, it's going out and they're getting a lot of calls and they're getting appointments, but they're all bad deals, right? Like all these appointments are bad deals. And what sometimes it ends up being is you have a bad salesperson. They don't know how to close the deal. And so it doesn't end up making you money and you're blaming the mail piece for not giving you good opportunities, but it, it could be it could be human error along the way. The person answering the phone, the person going on the appointment, the person talking to the homeowners, th there could be your problem, right? But if it is if it is the mail piece, there's a lot of stuff you can do to try to fix that before the end of a six-month period. So that's my super long-winded um, answer to that. Um, when it comes to cold calling, RVM and text, it's, uh, you may not be doing enough. Like You need to do a lot, a lot, a lot of those, a lot to get the results that you probably are looking for. So it's a numbers game. All right. I found a house in my neighborhood that I would like to purchase for a buy and hold. It's vacant. I found another house in town that's listed as the same owner via tax records. Okay. I wrote a letter to the owner about two weeks ago, but they have yet to, I have yet to get a response. What should be my continued course of action? Uh, send them another piece of mail, call them directly, right? It sounds like um, you wrote a letter to the owner two weeks ago. I, I would write them another letter. I would call them. If they're in my town, I would, I would, I might go to their house. Like I, if I really wanted these properties, I would go all out. Probably if I went to their house, I don't know that I would necessarily knock. It depends on how long I've been trying to get a hold of them, but I would put a note on their door for sure. Like I would put it on their front door, sticky note where they're going to see it. And eventually they're going to respond to you, right? You got to be careful. You don't cross the line of harassment, obviously, because they're not going to sell you a house if you harass them. But I would send them a letter 
at least once a week, I would skip trace them so that I can get their phone number and I would call them. I would send them a text message and I would put a note on their door. Like I would go all out. You just, you know, sending a letter, waiting two weeks and then just going, I don't know what to do. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing. I'm being a little bit harsh, but like, what if that person was holding on to a million dollars that belonged to you? Would you send them a letter, wait two weeks, and then just sort of go, I don't know what to do? Or would you just like send them a bunch of letters, call them, knock on their door? Like, what would you do if they had a million dollars that belonged to you? Like, do that. Do what you would do there. You'll get them. But try not to be creepy because they won't sell you a house if you're creepy. Okay, next question. Uh, I have heard people say you have to have an exit strategy when owning real estate investments. What does this mean in practical terms? I love it when people say, my guess is the people who are saying this to this person don't have any real estate experience. That's my, that's my experience. When people tell me what I have to do in real estate, usually they don't have a clue. But exit strategies, yes. Uh, if you're a landlord, and you plan on holding properties until you die and not never sell them, then you don't need an exit strategy. Like if you buy, if you, if your goal is to just buy a portfolio of rentals and literally will them to your kids or your, your nephews and nieces or whatever, then you don't need an exit strategy. You don't need one, right? So it's not true. It's not a fair statement to say that you need to, you have to have an exit strategy when you own real estate. That's, that's silly. But in most cases, you, you will have an exit strategy. And that's, that's just a fundamental part of real estate investing. Most people are doing one of three things. I know there's other stuff, but there's one of three things. They're either buy and hold investors, which is what I just said, like a landlord. They're fix and flip. Okay, They're buying properties, fixing them up, selling them for profit, or they're wholesaling. You know, Sometimes it's multifamily, but same, you can do the same thing. You're basically flipping multifamily or you're holding it long-term. So multifamily can be versatile that way. You can hold it forever. You can buy it and increase the value and sell it. Um, you can find a, a multifamily property, get it under contract and wholesale to somebody. Like you can do all those things with multifamily, but those are the three avenues, buy and hold, fix and flip, wholesale. Two of those strategies require an exit strategy. Buy and hold doesn't require an exit strategy. But if your goal is to buy properties, build up a portfolio of rentals, hold them for 10 years and then sell them, okay, then there's an exit strategy there, right? And you have to think about that. But for fix and flip and for wholesalers, it's built into the model. Like a fix and flip person, you don't have to tell them they need an exit strategy. They're well aware of it. Their exit strategy is very defined and very clear. They're buying it, they're renovating it, they're selling it, right? That's the exit strategy. A wholesaler, they're, the entire business model of a wholesaler is contingent upon the exit strategy. Like, I'm a wholesaler. When I get a deal under contract, all there is is an exit strategy. And, and I might have multiple exit strategies, but I have one. So I think that whoever's telling you this, that you have to have an exit strategy, it's sort of like stating the obvious. I don't, I don't know too many people who get into real estate investing and get a house under contract and then don't have any idea what they're going to do. They, they don't know what they want to do with it. Like it's pretty unusual, right? They know they want it to be a rental. They know they want to fix and flip it, or they know they want to wholesale it. But most people know what they're going to do when they buy a house, or at least they have a, a, a plan. Even if it's vague, they have a plan, right? It could be, you know, a better way to state this is when you're in real estate, you need 
to think about all of the exit strategies in case your target strategy doesn't work out. Okay. Example of this would be you buy a house to fix and flip, you buy it, you renovate it, and you can't sell it. Maybe the market turned, maybe you completely missed your numbers and, and you bought it and renovated it and you spent way too much. You went over budget and now you can't sell it. The secondary exit strategy could be to rent it. Maybe you're going to rent it because you can't sell it, but you can rent it. It brings in good rental income. Like that would be a contingent exit strategy. So having more than one potential exit strategy is a much better statement to make to someone that, hey, you need more than one exit strategy, or you should at least consider what you do if what you plan on doing doesn't work, have a second, secondary, a backup strategy. Like th that's a fair statement. But to say you have to have an exit strategy, it's kind of like, it's sort of an obvious thing, right? So what do they mean? I think they just mean you have to know what you're going to do with a property. Once you buy it, what are you going to do? How are you going to make money, right? Exit strategy is how are you going to monetize it? You're going to rent it out for 30 years. You're going to fix it up and sell it in six months, or are you going to wholesale it to somebody and get rid of it in two weeks, right? Those are the exit strategies. That was a weird question. Not, not the person who asked, but the person who they were talking to who said, you have to have an exit strategy when owning real estate. It's weird, but anyway, yeah. You don't if you're going to hold it forever. If you're just going to buy rentals and keep them and will them to your family, you don't have to have an exit strategy. Okay, uh, how do you know when to turn a side hustle in, in real estate into a full-fledged business? Yeah, this is a good question too. This is this is one that I hear all the time, and unfortunately, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a personal decision. It's not what was right for me isn't right for everybody. So you know, if I was if I could dial back the clock and I'm living at home with my parents and I'm 19 years old, uh, I would turn it into a full fledged business the next day. Like that would be my my strategy because I live at home. I don't have any obligations. I'm not married. I don't have any kids. Right? I'm 19. I live at home. Now's the time to go for broke. I would, I would make it a full-fledged business that day for sure. And I wish that I could do that. Um, okay. Conversely, you're 40 years old. You have two kids, wife and a husband, wife or a husband, not wife and a husband. That would be weird. But a wife or a husband, you have a full-time job that pays you well. You have a mortgage. Your kids go to private school. I mean... You can't do it that day. You can't do it the next day. You have to build up to it. You have to get to that point. And then everybody else, everybody has a different um, risk tolerance, right? So if you have all those things that I just said, if you're the 40-year-old in that scenario, you might want to wait until your side hustle income matches or exceeds your nine-to-five job. Maybe that's where you have to be in order for everyone in the scenario to feel good about it, not just you, but your spouse, your girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, whoever you, whoever's important to you in that scenario, like may, you have to consider them too, right? Because I'm telling you, this industry is very difficult to succeed when your significant other is not on your side. It's very hard. You, you take something that's already difficult and you make it excruciatingly hard. Okay. Um, so they have to be on your side. So when do you turn a side hustle into a full-time thing? Whenever you're, whenever you have the tolerance for that to happen. And I'll tell you what I did in my case, and maybe this will be helpful. So 
I was sort of the second scenario. I wasn't, I wasn't um, exactly 40, but I had a wife, I had kids, I had a mortgage, I had a good paying job. And I, and, and I'm, I'm sort of like, I have a high risk tolerance. I risk doesn't bother me. My wife has less of a risk tolerance. And so that all has to be considered. And so I might've quit my job sooner than what, what, than what I did if it was only up to me, but because I have to consider her feelings and I, and I want to, I, what we decided was once I saved in the bank, one year salary of my salary in the bank, then I would quit my job. And that gives me one year runway, worst case scenario. I, I burned through all that money. And a year later, I have to go find another job. That, that was the idea. And I did that, saved up the year salary, never looked back, ended up just, you know, everything took off and, and it worked out. It was great. But that was, that was the, the, the safety net that needed to be in place for me to decide to do that. It's different for everybody else. But I will say, if you're miserable, if you hate your job, if you just want to get out of it and real estate feels like the vehicle to get you there, then start working your butt off. Work weekends, work holidays, work on your lunch hour from your normal job, work nights. I did all those things, all those things. I would, I would clock out at my job at 5, 5.30 and I would go look at two or three houses every day. And then when I got them under contract, I would go visit them on my lunch hour. I would go visit them after work. I would be there on the weekends. Like I worked basically two jobs until I could get my, my side hustle to the point that it was generating the kind of revenue I was making my nine to five. And then I banked it and I went all in and never looked back. But you've got to put in the time. You got to put in the effort. And it's different for everybody. Like I said, if you're 19 living at home, Make it your full-time gig right now. What are you waiting for until you have a mortgage and kids and all these things that keep people from actually taking action on things they want to do because they have responsibilities and obligations. You don't want to wait for that. Go do it now. But if you already are in like the midst of all those obligations and responsibilities, and frankly, sometimes having a really good paying job is is, is hold you back because it's like golden handcuffs, right? You don't, you can't just leave a job where you're making a lot of money it's hard, right? But again, if you're if you have the job where you're making a lot of money and you're single and you it's up to you and, and you don't have to answer to anybody or consider anybody else in the scenario, make it your full-time gig today if you want to, right? Burn the boats, as they say. I don't tell everyone to burn the boats. Some people can't would not be able to handle that level of stress. Like I burn the boats, I quit my job. Now what? And if things don't go well, that could be devastating and it could ruin marriages and it could ruin relationships. So be really, really careful about it. I think for most people, working it as a side hustle until you can save that big, you know, that, that bank account that sort of will, will float you for a year. I think that's probably a safe way to go about it. I think a lot of people have a hard time with burning the boats. It sounds sexy, but at the end of the day, if you, you can't be miserable. You don't want to wake up like every day in a cold sweat and, and you can't fall asleep at night because you're stressed out. Like that's not the way to do it either. That's not what we're, what we're doing this for. Right. Okay. Um, let's see. Next question. How do you know when to turn us? Okay. I just answered that one. That's I'm reading the same one. Okay. Next one from Kyle Burnett. What's up, Kyle? Are you seeing a slowdown or any changes in the market? Um, no, I'm not really, uh, I see all these things on the internet and YouTube where people are, are predicting this crash. I've not seen it. I, 
for my for my money, I, I've not seen a big slowdown. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily rising at the rate it was a year ago or six months ago. I don't even know that it's leveled off necessarily because in my market, at least, I know that houses that, you know, what they cost six months ago, they're more now and they're more than they were even a couple of months ago. So I think the market's still pretty strong. I've not heard anybody, and I'm part of the seven-figure flipping group, uh, as is Kyle. I, I've not seen anybody in there say that the market's like leveling off or crashing anywhere. So I'm not seeing that evidence yet. I do think something is going to happen. And I, I would just be so surprised if we didn't see any evidence, evidence of it before the end of the year. But honestly, I said that last year. I really thought by the beginning of this year, we would start seeing some evidence of a slowdown and maybe even a decline hasn't happened. You know, it's, I guess if I just keep predicting that I will eventually be right, but um, I'm not seeing it, man. I, I'm not seeing it just yet. So we'll see. I, that being said, if someone tried to talk to me about getting into a three-year project right now and investing a ton of money in some sort of like a land development deal, I, I wouldn't do it. I would be very nervous to get into some long-term deal, but because I'm a wholesaler in and out, in and out for flippers, same thing. You're into it for four or five months, maybe six months. That's not bad. Um, I don't know if I'd get into a three-year development thing, you know, where I was counting on appreciation. Like that seems a little nerve-wracking. All right, next question. I have a large list of email addresses. What do you think would be a more cost-effective email email blasting them or doing a targeted Facebook ad? If you have their email addresses, I would email blast them. I would I would use Mailchimp, Aweber, Constant Contact, whatever whatever you want, whatever your mail service of choice is. But, but I would I would send them an email for sure. I mean, for, you could do Facebook ads too. You're looking for cost effective. I don't really know what the cost of doing the Facebook ad would be to be perfectly honest, but doing the Facebook ad seems it's targeted, but it's not as targeted as literally sending them an email to their inbox. Like that's targeted. Like you're gonna get in their inbox that day. That's what I would do. Just make sure you are using, don't email blast them through like Gmail or something, like use a service because those services like MailChimp and Aweber and all those, they are designed to keep you out of the spam folders and stuff. So use a service so you don't end up becoming just like blacklisted and then nothing gets through to these people because you're being, you know, you were tagged as spam. So use a service. Okay, uh, let's see, next question. Well, I'm really going through these pretty at a pretty good clip. There are a lot. Okay. Prices continue to go higher for someone. Let's see. Let me read that again. Prices continue to go higher and higher for someone like me to get into real estate. Where should I be looking to find deals? <laughs> Listen, prices are going higher and higher for everybody. They're not going higher and higher for you. But I will say this. There are deals out there. There just There is now. There was yesterday. There will be tomorrow. There was 10 years ago. There will be 10 years from now, I promise you. Right now, uh, in my, my company, my real estate company, we have more deals under contract today than probably any single day in the last year and a half. Like We are absolutely cranking and busting at the seams. And we're spending a lot less on marketing than we did a year and a half ago. So the deals are definitely out there. Where are they? You know, Different strategies work different and for different people in different markets, but I think direct mail and pay-per-click are always good pillars. They're always really, really good sources of deals. If you're a house flipper, you should be, and I just told someone this a couple of days ago, 
If you're a house flipper, you should be on every wholesaler's list in your market. I mean, every wholesaler in your market. Don't just try to find the two or three that you think are the good ones. Get on all of them. Because if I'm flipping houses, if that's my model, I'm going to try to buy most of my deals from wholesalers because it's free. There's no marketing there. You're right? you just, you're, you're, they're obviously marking up the price. The wholesaler is marking up the price so they can make money. I get that. But if I run my numbers and the deal makes sense to me at a price, I can get it from a wholesaler, then do that. Like wholesalers are such a great source. Everyone is like worried, like, oh, they're making money. Yeah, you're making money too. Do you want the end buyer as a house flipper? Do you want the end buyer to not buy the house that you renovated and that you are listing at a fair market value? Should they not buy that house because you made money as a house flipper? That's that's insane. But I've seen plenty of house flippers have that attitude about wholesalers. I don't want to buy from a wholesaler. They mark it up. They're making too much money. Do you make too much money? Should the end buyer work? You know what I mean? So get on the wholesalers list. Do it. Do that for sure. Um, direct mail. I like postcards. And we could get into that sometime too. But I like postcards. Those are the, That's the way to go, I think. And uh, Google pay-per-click is, is a really great way to find. We're finding a lot of deals that way. Um, we're using cold calling. It's working a little bit. It's not our main way of getting deals, but we're, we're getting them that way. Um, and I do think that text blast and ringless voicemail can be effective if you, if you realize it's a numbers game and you're doing a lot of it, you know, not just a little bit, not just dipping your toe, dipping your toe into marketing is the best way to waste money. You need to go in, you need to be all in and commit to something and go after it and really, really dial it in. Um, but there are deals out there right now. Like I said, I, in this market, as competitive as it is, I can't believe how many deals we're finding. And frankly, in the seven-figure flipping group, I have talked to those folks. And I know finding deals at the last meetup we had, finding deals was not people's problem. It was more systems-oriented. They had structural problems inside of their company. And the way they were managing the flow of deals and things was sort of bad. Some of them couldn't find the money. But finding deals in the, in the people that I talk to the most... They're finding them right now. The question is, are you finding, this kind of goes back to one of the earlier questions. Are you finding good deals? Are you finding deals that are, that can be gotten low enough for you to make enough money? So, um, so find those deals, but find better deals, right? And if you can't find deals, join my program. I'm going to help you find deals. That's exactly, exactly what I'm going to do in that, in that group is help you find good deals and then help you figure out how you're going to fund those. And we will get that figured out. Trust me. Um, because like I said, you may not, you may not be struggling finding deals, but you're not making enough money. There's not enough there for you. They're just really, really thin. And so how do you find a quantity of good deals? That that's the name of the game, right? That's what we're all striving for. So join the program. I will help you do that. Okay. Um, let's see the next question. What are your thoughts about going into business with a best friend or a loved one, even, sorry, what are your thoughts on going into business with a best friend or a loved one or even a family member? I think it is usually, and if I'm going to quantify this, I would say 90% of the time it's a bad idea um, because it ends up getting very uncomfortable if if it doesn't work out. And so going into business with a loved one can damage a, a, a very important relationship permanently. Um, a family member, same thing. 
just, it, it gets, gets real ugly if it doesn't work out. And partnerships are a lot like marriages. They just, a lot of them fail. You know, they just, a lot of them fail. And the reason why they fail a lot of times, it's not necessarily because it's your family member or your loved one. It fails because you didn't evaluate that partnership the way you would have evaluated a partnership with someone who wasn't a friend or family member or loved one. You just sort of like, you, you sort of just like, did it without really a lot of consideration. That's what happens a lot of times. And it falls apart because it wasn't a really good partnership to begin with. It just sounded good because you knew them and it was easy and you just figured it all work out. It usually doesn't. I, I, I say avoid it, honestly, if you can, like try to avoid it. Best friends, loved ones, family members. My gosh, these are all relationships that are going to be devastating for most people if they lose them. And fact of the matter is a lot of partnerships don't work out. But if you're going to pick a partner, you know, there's some key things that, that you really have to be careful. Make sure that, you know, a couple of them are make sure that your, your work ethic is the same. Don't partner with someone who likes to take all the weekends off and sort of likes to be done by three or four o'clock every day. If you like to work until 10 and you never take a weekend off, that will eventually come to a head and, and there'll be resentment and things. Um, don't partner with someone who has the exact same skills as you. You know, you may be like a really good salesperson. You're good at talking to people. You don't need a partner in your business who's really, really great at that too. You need somebody who's really great at something else. And chances are, if you're great at talking to people, you're a good salesperson, you're not great with numbers. You're not great with details. You're not great with contracts. Like bring somebody in as a partner who's really, really good at those things that you're not so good at. Um, make sure that your risk tolerance is, is the same. You know, I said like my wife and I, when we were uh, business partners in our, in a real estate business, I have a, I have a high risk tolerance and she has a low risk tolerance. Now it wasn't like it didn't ruin our relationship, but it obviously will be conflict because the person with high risk tolerance is going to want to take risks because they have a high risk tolerance and the person who's risk averse is not going to want to do that. So there's going to be some built-in conflict there potentially. Um, and then finally, just make sure that your goals are the same. You know, don't assume because you want to build a $10 million business that they want to build a $10 million business unless you ask them that. You have that, that direct question and you have that conversation because like usually what happens is like, all right, dude, let's blow this up. Let's crush it, right? And then you just start working. But blow this up and crush it, it's not quantifiable. What does that mean? Do you want to make a million dollars and then just put it on autopilot and just like coast and not have to work hard? Or are you saying you want to get to 10 million, right? That's a big difference. It's a totally different company. A $1 million company, $10 million company, totally different company with all kinds of different working parts. So you have to really quantify what you want before you partner with anybody but still, I say, be really careful to the point of maybe not doing it when it comes to friends, family, and loved ones. And then even when it comes to partners, I think most people partner for the wrong reasons. They partner because they're, you know, they have this entrepreneurial like loneliness. They need someone to talk to. They want someone to bounce ideas off of. They want someone who's sort of in the trenches with them. They want like companionship in their business. And that's not really a great reason to partner. It's not a good reason at all. So a lot of times when you think you need to partner, you probably really just need to hire somebody or you need to bring someone onto your team to fill a void or to fill a gap in what's happening. So I would say don't partner with friends and family. Really hesitate and tap the brakes before you partner with anybody and then partner only when you meet those criteria that I just said. Okay, that is all the questions I have for this week. I will remind you, I have a program that's starting on September 21st. 
The last go around, it was more of a, a business. Uh, we had a ton of real estate, but there was it was mostly just like hot, like business 101, right? This is more real estate 101. It's very real estate focused. Uh, we are talking about finding and funding deals. That's why we call it the real estate find and fund blueprint. I am going to make sure nobody leaves that program without a solid plan for finding and funding deals. Hopefully during the program, people will start finding deals and finding the funding form during the program, right? It's not something where I want you to wait, spend four weeks and then, then launch, right? But go check it out. If there's more explanation on the website, if you go to findandfundblueprint.com, you can check it out. You can sign up there. Now's the time to do it. Guys, I can't take unlimited people. This is an interactive program. Um, I mean, there's interaction with everybody in it. Um, that being said, I can't interact with an unlimited amount of people. So go join now, guys. This program is going to be mind-blowingly great. I think you're going to love it. I really think it's going to help a lot of people blow up their business before the end of the year. Um, so go check that out. And again, as always, guys, I'll be here on Wednesdays. I'm here on Wednesdays every week from 7 p.m. Eastern time we start and 4 p.m. Pacific. Until next time, guys, go get it. Put the questions down in the comments. If I miss it, I'll get to it next week. Send them to me during the week. You can email me at mikeatjuststartrealestate.com. You can find me on all the social uh, uh, media places at Mike S. Simmons, whether it's Instagram, Twitter, whatever it is. Go check them out and send me those questions, guys, and I'll get them answered for you. All right, until next time, we'll see ya. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Remember, I do these Q&As live on Facebook on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this. Tune in next week for another installment of live Q&As answering your questions. Okay, until next time.